Hello, fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mogul. My pronouns are he and him. And I am here with my temporal co-hosts. That fits. Because I am the artist formerly known as Chelsea Hollowell, and I now go by Cassidy, or Cass for short, to better reflect who I am inside. Nice. And what are your pronouns? They, them. Hell yeah. Cassidy has died. Long live Cassidy. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yes. And what fantastical thing are you today? That's it. <laughs> Yay! That's, that's the fantastical thing that they are. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Because well, the world, the real world has magic and fantasy woven throughout it, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. I hope so. Well, if not, I'm in trouble. Yes. Because I have pissed off a lot of wizards. No, wait. If there's no magic, then I'm okay. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> wizards. I hope they weren't men. They'd be driven mad by their power. It doesn't matter right. if you don't believe in them because they believe in their power to kill you. <laughs> oh, it's I'm revenge. Sh- I'm sure a lot of people believe in their power to kill me. <laughs> Call a cleric, but not for me. Yes. These wizards are Americans, you see. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, boy. Uh-oh. I mean, I live here, like, Whoops, sure. only evocation. <laughs> <laughs> Bulletomancer. That's right. But who am I? Who are you? I just keep yammering, but my name isn't out there yet. Better get it out to the world. Yeah, probably should. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm Jack Olander, any pronoun. And, uh, uh, you know, I was just some some guy beating up the little guy, you know, going around kicking small, you know, short people <laughs> until I studied the art of the blade, Bushido. And now uh-huh. I'm a civilized individual. Well, that's oh, nice. nice. Yes. <laughs> there are two types of people. Those who study Bushido, the art of the blade, and the barbarians. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that we have a lot of people out to kill all three of us. They can try, but I study Bushido, <laughs> the art of the blade. What chance do they possibly have? Well, we'll see. And I'm infused with magic. Hell yes. And I just live here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're the mundane? That that can be the most powerful of all. I hope so. Yes. I'm just your average everyday dungeon manager. <laughs> is that like, is that the forensic anthropology thing? <laughs> <laughs> I guess it kind of Like is. how Barry yes. Allen says he's yes. an everyday forensic anthropologist? Yeah, you know, there's only like 130 of them in the entire country, but he's just an average everyday one of those. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. Well, that's enough uh, introducing ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> what if do we you say so? What do we do here? We talk about fantasy shows and movies. That's right. And today we're going to be talking about The Wheel of Time again. For, for the for the fifth time. Because <laughs> this is a satire TV episode. Heck yeah. <laughs> but you know what makes all of these shows possible? Magic. Well, that's true. Audio magic. Because I'm the audio wizard. True. But. Oh God, are you on the wizards I pissed <laughs> off? What fuels my magic? Besides 
all of our listeners. Jack, I can't help but notice that they didn't answer my question. (laughs) It depends on the day. I didn't even hear it, so I refused to respond to it. You Um, didn't hear something Jamie said? (laughs) How the hell? (laughs) The listeners heard it, and I don't mean through the audio of their stereo right now. I mean, (laughs) when I said it, that's how loud I am. Yes. It's our patrons, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, our patrons. That is magical. Yeah. And if people can follow the thread of that sentence, that's magic, too. But what what do our patrons do for us, Jamie? Well, they help support our show every month. And to do that, they go to patreon.com slash swords and satire. And they check out the different tiers of support that they can offer. And they go in there and they freaking sign up for one of those gosh dang tears. <laughs> That's right. And they don't just get our undying gratitude, although that is also something they get. They also get special bonus episodes. They get some bonus art. They get to vote on movies we watch every month. It's a great deal. I'm not going to lie. It's true. <laughs> That's right, but that's not all they get. They also get our undying gratitude. But in addition to that, they get to vote on what movies we watch each month. (laughs) And bonus episodes. That's right. Jamie, save us from this cycle. This wheel of time. Yeah, it's a real wheel of time up in here. Yes. All right, well, let's talk about another wheel of time. The wheel of time. (laughs) Today we're going to be discussing episode five, Blood calls blood. Yeah. That sounds painful. Yes. Like, what happens when the blood calls to the blood? Well, blood begets blood, right? Does it? (laughs) Uh, Sure, why not? Oh, God. But if somebody's blood calls to your blood, like, do you feel it pulsing through your veins even harder? (laughs) Bring, 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 bring. Oh, who's on the phone? Hello, it's me, blood. Oh, God, I'm also blood. That was my interpretation of this episode. Are you saying blood that calls blood. when blood calls blood, both become sentient? <laughs> oh, sure. Uh, how does the blood call the blood before it's sentient? I like that. Well, you Instinct. Know, we should be like blood, because when blood calls to blood, blood motivates blood to pump faster. <laughs> True. Through the blood veins. That's right. And there's some blood in this episode. So we should probably summarize it for the listeners so they know what the fuck is going on. Okay, so in this episode, we finally have the three different groups we've been following. Kind of. It's a confluence in the same city at Tarvalon, at least. Almost. They're getting there. Yeah. Somewhat. <laughs> Some of them don't make it this episode. Not quite, but they're not down for the count. No, not yet. Just about yet. That's right, because our eternal patron... Because our eternal friend Matt will always be there with us. Oh, fuck. All right, so where are our friends Rand and Matt at the beginning of this confluence? They're on the road, traveling with some random people that we have never seen before, and I assume we will never see again. They're part of some, like, pilgrimage train or something. Yeah. Matt is not having a good time. He is looking real rough. We know a few things about Matt. One of the things we know about Matt 
This guy loves kids, right? What's the first thing he does in this episode? He snaps at a little kid. Mm-hmm. So we know something's not right. Meanwhile, Rand, he's got a sweet new cloak. We don't know where he got it, unless it was in a previous episode, and I just missed it. This thing is sweet. That's how sweet the sweet cloak is. Yeah. It's a sweet green cloak. I want it. It, like, completely substitutes having a personality. 100%. I'm not going to lie. Rand has the least personality, but possibly the best costumes in the show. Yeah. yeah. I also love his fur jacket that he wears. I just want Rand's whole outfit. I will replace Rand in the next season. Okay, Fair enough. okay. But no just one... for the costume. Not because I have anything against the actor. I think the actor's doing a fine job. Yeah. That's right. But no one could replace Matt. That's right. Never. Yes. That's never going to happen. So they're out on the road. They're traveling. Matt's not doing good. And almost magically, they get to Tarvalon, the city of the White Tower. They're having some angsty conversations. Matt asks Rand to make sure that he never turns to the dark side. And that if he does, he says, Rand, you got to put me down, buddy. Yeah. This is fantasy fiction. One of us has to make the promise to the other one that if we become evil, we're going to kill each other. That's the deal. That's because they see the procession uh, through the city of the false dragon. That's right. And Matt doesn't want that to become him. True. That's right. So they have a conversation that you could have uh, replayed for you in every episode of Supernatural. That's right. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Great point. That is a Sam and Dean conversation. The demon If I've ever seen one. (laughs) That's right. But yeah, so like Cass mentioned, Matt and Rand are kind of hanging on a balcony and the procession of Aes Sedai come through with Loghain, the false dragon, as he's come to be known. But in the middle of all of this, Rand is hanging out in a library and we meet the new star of the show. (laughs) My new favorite character, Loyal, the Ogre. And Rand, this racist bastard, draws his sword... (laughs) Just automatically assuming that Loyal is there to hurt him because he's an ogre, which is like an ogre man. Loyal's like, oh, you humans, you're so silly. You're always making quick spur of the moment decisions that could cost other people their lives and being rash and making poor choices and saying that you are not something that you probably clearly are. (laughs) Yeah, he was calling... Rand and Aelmin. That's right. Which is uh, one of the, like, warrior men we saw in a previous episode where Matt and Tom were putting a Aelmin to rest. But we know that that's not true because Rand says, no, I'm from the Two Rivers. And Loyal's like, well, you've got red hair, so you must be an Aelmin. And Rand's like, nope, I'm from the Two Rivers. And Loyal's like, all right. You just keep doing you then, buddy. Yeah. But Loyal's great, fantastic character. He is a Ogre librarian. He's the best character. That's that's it. Yeah, I think we've peaked. Ograrian. Yeah. Ograrian, thank oh, you. Oh, shit. Anyways, there's a lot of jumping around, but eventually Rand meets back up with Nenev uh, because Loyal finds her and is able to identify her by her braid. Yes. Because Loyal, this guy just knows what's going on. He's he's a librarian. He's filled with intricate knowledge, and he knows how to find people. He goes into the White Tower because he has access to it, 
brings the Nev to Rand and Matt. Matt, like I said, not doing too good, but Rand and Nenev have a little conversation, and Nenev assures Rand that Egwene, she's going to be just fine. She's tough. She survived worse than this expedition. And that's pretty much the end of their little plot for this episode. That's right. But there's a plot I'm reviewing, too. Yeah. It's with Perrin and Egwene. Egwene. In my mind, Nynaeve and <laughs> Egwene are the same name. Yeah. What the heck is going on? I that, well, don't know. what are those two crazy kids up to? A month has gone by, and they're still traveling with the followers of the Way of the Leaf, the Tuatha Dan. Tuatha Dan. I said it. I said it wrong the entire last episode. Well, there it is. And uh, <laughs> they're hanging out with their new friend, whose name is Aram. Whose name is, of course, Aram. <laughs> yes. They're all traveling around. They're like, oh, check it out. Look over the trees. It's the White Tower. This is so exciting. And then they get ganked, right? You know, who comes up to see them? But the followers of the light. Ooh. The, the yeah. white cloaks. Hiss. The reverse inquisition. Dislike. That's right. It's bad news because they're like, hey, those two over there, I don't know why I just pointed them out, but uh, they, they're coming with us. And the Tuathodons say, hey, if they choose to travel with us, you can't just take them. Yeah, they basically say, like, they're one of us. They've eaten our food and sat by our fire. That's right. They've pissed in our midden. And the followers of the light are like, hey, pacifist, what are you going to do to stop us? And so they form a, uh, a chain... Uh, by linking arms to block the path and the followers of the light are like oh the way of the leaf check out my way of the light and then you just start they just start beating them up basically pretty sure they show them the way of the fist yeah yeah they're using non-lethal force but they are inflicting violence on the tuatha and who are not fighting back but trying to protect perrin and Egwene. by the way the leader is child valda yes Child Valda. They attack the Tuatha An, and Perrin and Egwene try to run away with their friend, whose name is Aran. Aram. Aram. And uh, they get caught up. Aram receives a blow to the head, which leaves him dead or unconscious. <laughs> it's one of those two. And then... Uh, Probably a concussion. Kidnapped. Perrin and Egwene find themselves in the camp of the White Cloaks. Where they are... It's a bad scene. Where bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. Where they are in the tent of Child Valda. Doing a little inquisitioning. That's right. He Now, he, we get a little bit more philosophy on the white cloaks. He says, hey, you're a person who can uh, tap into the one source, which makes you bad, right? Yep, that's his philosophy. I'm going to slice up your friend here if you don't channel for me. See, Child Valda makes an assumption that the woman in their party is the magic one. That's right. Yeah. This assumption will not go well for him in the end. That's right. And so he starts slicing up Perrin and <laughs> Egwene starts freaking out and Perrin's eyes are going all wolfy. And uh, Yeah, they turn golden when he's about to channel. Pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, so he's like, hey, so here's the deal. If you channel, I'll kill you, but I'll spare your friend. If you don't, I'll kill your friend and I'll spare you. 
And so she's like, bad deal. Real rock in a hard place there. That's right. A rock in my what? Anyway, so he leaves. Caught a golf down. That's right. By the time he comes back. That's right. (laughs) He comes back. He says, did you make a decision? Obviously, they couldn't make a decision. Yeah. And Perrin reveals that he killed his wife to Egwene. And uh, she wants him to feel he has value and that he should stay alive. And he was blameless in that. So she's not willing to sacrifice him, even though he's asking for it. No, she'd rather let him live with his sorrow. She wants him to live long enough to forgive himself. That's right. And so child Valda starts carving up Perrin. And uh, he wolfs out again. Yeah. Egwene does channel and tries to kill child Valda, but. It, it's pretty pathetic. <laughs> it's a sad little uh, piddly flashbolt, I guess. Yeah, but she does burn off Perrin's rope bindings. And Perrin ended up having a much better offensive capability than Egwene's magic. By stabbing <laughs> Child Valda in the back. And summoning a pack of wolves to eat a bunch of white clubs. Great technique. Yeah. yeah, they gather their belongings, run out with them. Egwene gets the rings. Yeah, I didn't even notice that. That Valda was collecting. Yeah. It's no Bushido, but the way of the wolf is good too. It does the job. Yes. So the wolf pack, their pack, helps That's them right. escape. Yes. And they they get away. Yeah. I was I was screaming. Yes. <laughs> it's good. But they didn't finish the job on Child Valda. No, of course not. You never kill off the dogged pursuer who's going to come after you until the day they die. You you let them live so that they can keep pursuing you. I mean, that's just, that's called the hunt. I don't understand. We have him tied down. Why don't we just shoot him now? You just don't get it, do you? <laughs> yeah, you don't kill off your best villain, and we should talk about that. Yes. But, meanwhile... The Aes Sedai, we already know they were coming into Tarvalon in a procession leading in the false dragon in a cage to parade him through the streets so that the citizens could mock him. You know, like civilized people do. Like the Romans used to do with captured barbarian kings or, or Celtic warlords. But what the Romans didn't know is that they too were barbarians, for they did not study Bushido. Oh boy. <laughs> So they make their way to the White Tower. It seems like they control the whole city of Tarvalon. So it's kind of like a safe haven for them. And so it becomes clear through some of their conversations that what we thought was like a whole matriarchy led by the Aes Sedai is really more like matriarchal pockets. Mm-hmm. And there are patriarchal systems in other kingdoms as well. And it seems like that is actually more of the common status quo. Yeah, Tarvalon is like a matriarchal conclave. Right. Kind of, in their eyes at least, holding back the tide of men who want to kill them all. But the Aes Sedai are also in mourning for their lost members, and especially Karin or Karine, because fantasy. And <laughs> her warder, who's left behind Stepin, is grieving for her loss. And he says that all that's left behind is the pain. But he likes it that way. 
because he still loves her and he doesn't want the pain to go away because he still wants to feel her close to him. And we get to this idea that like the warders and the Aes Sedai are bonded and there's some magical element to that. They seem to be able to feel each other's feelings and they have some kind of magical bond. Well, and we saw that in the last episode where as some of them were getting cut down, I think when Karen A got cut down, Stepan like reacted as if he felt it. Right. Um, and so we see that the city of Tarvalon has a real Eastern cultural aesthetic to it. And so do their cultural traditions there, such as they wear white during mourning. And we see a ritual of mourning for grieving for Karen A, but also Stepan, because uh, trigger warning... <laughs> He takes his own life. Yes. We actually, we see two very different funerary rituals between the Aes Sedai and the Warder. The one for the Aes Sedai for Karen A is very somber and it's just stepping, kind of going alone to this ever-burning fire and melting her ring in, like, the molten gold. Whereas the funeral for Stepin is, like, an affair where everybody is present and where um, Lon has to kind of scream the agony of the entire ensemble. Yeah, there's a representative that will mourn for the entire group, but they show solidarity by beating their chest in unison with the mourning. And the episode ended on that scene quite heavy, but also very moving. Because it's a moving picture. Right, 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 right. I thought it was quite moving how heavy it was. Yes, it's hard to move heavy things. It was heavy how moving it was, too. (laughs) All right, well, why don't we head to the Delve? Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of the Wheel of Time. So guys, these episodes are just getting more and more jam-packed. We're doing a lot of jumps in between characters, but things are getting pretty interesting. The story is getting richer and more interesting as they deviate more and more from the book and they start exploring the story on their own terms, which I enjoy. But you guys made me think about something. I really strongly dislike Child Valda. <laughs> Same. I am really hating on him when he's on the screen. He I seems like a terrible person. This means that the actor must be the nicest guy in the world, based on my theory of the best villains are played by the nicest people. It seems to hold up for most of the time. Yeah. So you guys got me thinking in our summary there. I think he's the best villain so far. Of the whole season. Have we seen any other villain? I mean, I guess the Faceless or the Eyeless and the Trollocs. The Ace Sedai. <laughs> <laughs> some may argue. To some commoners, they are the villains. That's right. That's, That's because why... those commoners haven't met the White Cloaks yet. Well, a lot of the commoners support the White Cloaks. And also the False Dragon. Yeah, the false dragon rules. Who he and his army were trying to go up against the White Tower as well. And he was the nicest villain we've seen so far. That's right. Yeah, he let his enemies join him. That's very Roman. That's true. Yes. 
So I actually am starting to appreciate Child Valda for being a really great villain that you love to hate. Yes. And the actor is very, very good at drawing these feelings out of you and just really ruminating in this role and like leaning into being such a <laughs> terrible bastard. Plus he looks great in that outfit he with does. the sleeveless and he's got the arms just cut up like a fucking well, marble statue. Yeah. He's dressed all in white. But like regal, elegant. Yeah, exactly. And always very clean. And he's a handsome guy. So it's very disconcerting how twisted he is. Yeah. <laughs> and this guy can act. The, I yeah. mean, some of the acting is really starting to pop off in this show. And I'm, I'm here for it. Mm-hmm. He embodies the villains. Some villains will look fair but feel foul. Yeah. Well, he feels real foul based on the fact that he talks to Egwene about how if she were the channeler, he would have already cut her hands off. I know. We've seen him torture people to death in previous episodes. He's basically toying with Egwene and Perrin. I mean, he is a ruthless dude. And the comparison, I think the closest comparison we can make to the way of the light in this world is like the Catholic Church, right? He's yeah. like very regal, dressed in white. He carries this authority. They're like paladins, basically, or clerics. But they are just these ruthless, fucking brutal killers or or warriors. I mean, they won't kill the Tuatha on, apparently. They just strike them with fists and stuff. But they are attacking unarmed, nonviolent travelers and, to get their way. Yeah. And the influence, obviously, is also the Spanish Inquisition, which was a kind of faction of Catholicism and also... Kind of a... Its own thing. Yeah, but also like a a regime that was very close-minded and ruthless and controlling over its populace. And felt completely validated because of the authority that they believe a higher power granted them, which is the white cloaks and the light. And repeated by Child Valda in this episode. Yeah, the parallels between them and the Inquisition are pretty blatant. Yeah. In terms of cutting off hands and burning people at stakes, it's like one-to-one pretty much. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but here's the thing. Ironic, what I'm about to say, considering what I've, the attitude I've had in every other episode, I'm not willing to jump to any conclusions about these guys. <laughs> oh, boy. And here's the reason. To me, they're just as evil as the Aes Sedai were in the first three episodes. Now the Aes Sedai are suddenly being shown as more, like, complex and human, right? Yeah, they have been. Well, the Aes Sedai are complicated because there's factions within the faction. Yeah, and they each have motivations for what they're doing. We're actually getting reasoning and compassion from them now. They're a lot less villainous than they were at the beginning. So the White Cloaks, they still have a chance for that. It hasn't happened yet. Well, so far, we've basically only gotten one perspective from the White Cloaks, and that's Child Valda. He's yeah. effectively the only White Cloak we've seen with substantive dialogue. Yeah. Now, the first time our group ran into them, I think in episode two, when they were still traveling with Moraine, Child Valda was there, but there was another commander 
or leader of the White Cloaks there who didn't seem to agree with Child Valda's methods and wanted to leave the traveling group alone. I'm assuming that guy has been killed off in place of Child Valda's authority. I forget his name, but I remember the character from the books. And you shouldn't completely discount Jack's hunch here, Jamie. Well, that's fair. I gotta say, from reading... The second book. But based yes. on what we have here, the, the major perspective we've gotten on these guys is what Child Valda says. And that is that he feels completely justified. He's basically like a militarized incel, right? He says like women cannot have power. It is an affront to the light. He, he's saying I have to kill all the women with power so that they don't get out of their place. But we have seen another perspective within the White Cloaks, as I mentioned. Sure. In uh, episode two, with that other commander who didn't agree with his methods and clearly does not like child Valda. Sure, but Valda seems to have higher authority in this group. They are fulfill different roles, and I forget what they are right now. Well, I'm not sure either, but child Valda actually has no authority. He says that the authority (laughs) lies in the light. Sure. He's just a follower. Yeah. It's true. I feel like a lot of um, persecutions have followed a very similar thought pattern. Yes. Basically, Child Valda is what amounts to kind of a rogue agent with followers. The White Cloaks kind of have their own factions, too, and we haven't really seen that. And he's kind of the more ruthless faction. He's got followers... But they're not all like him. But you know who else wears cloaks and hates the opposite gender? The red cloaks of the Aes Sedai. True. It's true. There are parallel conversations between Child Valda saying, like, all women are bitches, right? Yeah. And uh, Leandrin being like, well, she doesn't outright say it. She claims that she doesn't hate men. But two other characters say that she hates men and is part of a group that hates men. Yeah. And she doesn't refute that. And she's also part of the Inquisition branch of the Aes Sedai. Oh, absolutely. The Reds are like the militant feminists, basically. And they- I mean, in this world, kind of. Some stuff maps onto our real world. Some stuff is just fantasy, right? And Jack really is onto something because they wear red guys. And that's what the Inquisition wore. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just, you know, there's there's definitely a reason the White Cloak Inquisition is happening. It didn't come from nowhere. Like, hey, what if we just started killing the Aes Sedai, right? And they do have a large support and following. That's right. Just like Troubling. Loghain and his army did. Well, well, this isn't exactly a setting where, like, peace, love, and understanding get you very far. As we nope. see from our representatives, the Tuatha on, they're like the pacifists, right? They are a small contingent. They bring people in the willingly. Way of the leaf. <laughs> they bring people in willingly. All you need to do is share their food and their drink to be one of them. They don't have big numbers. They have nowhere near the power as like an established cultural unit like the Aes Sedai or the Way of the Light. That's right. They try to fight the White Cloaks in the most effective way they know how, with poetry. And also passive resistance. 
also does not go it's true. well. Child yeah. Valda just decks the leader in the faces like nice poetry, idiots. <laughs> Although the Tuatha would disagree with you there, Jamie, because sure. they would consider it to have gone very well because they didn't resort to violence themselves. Sure. There was a moral victory, but a physical loss. I think they have a lot of those. Yeah. They say that <laughs> they stand in defiance, and when that fails, they run away, and if that fails, they die. Hey, don't get me wrong. So far, the Tawatha on, definitely one of my favorite groups in the entire series. Not yeah. just because they have the best colorful, fun outfits and a really loving and embracing philosophy. They're just cool. I like them. Mm -hmm. I dig the pacifism angle, too. They address some of the best parts of their philosophy, in my opinion, that they started talking about last episode. Yes. Yes. Where there was that one member of their group who Perrin was like, they look scary. And, uh... Illa. Illa explained <laughs> that, uh, that woman used to be a mercenary, a killer for hire. And, but she saw a lot of violence and it didn't sit right because yeah. it shouldn't sit right. And uh, because of that trauma, they found the way of the leaf and they were able to appreciate the way of the leaf because they had strayed so far from it. Right. The philosophy that Illa more or less espouses is that people who have done great violence might be some of the most open to pacifism once they've had time to reflect on what they've done. That's right. And that's addressed in this episode when Perrin is talking to Aram. The Tuatha'an just let their dogs kill any wildlife that they come across. Perrin is like, isn't that kind of hypocritical? Because you're trying to be harmless. Right. But you let your dogs be really violent. And Aram is basically saying... Uh, violence is part of our nature. It exists in all of us. And the way of the leaf isn't to deny that, but to accept that and try to like, rise just be above. at peace with it and rise above that. Yeah. And so I, I you know, I like that because they aren't, they're not like running away from themselves. They're just trying to gain control. Yeah. No, I like the way that this show kind of explores the moral philosophy of the different characters and the different factions and shows this uncertainty between them, right? Like you guys are saying, the White Cloaks don't all agree, but Child Valda's faction is pretty morally reprehensible. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Even if the Aes Sedai might be... Um, a frightening group too. Child Valda's faction's response to that is just murder for the sake of murder. Yes, that's right. Child Valda, it, he wants to persecute women who have access to the one source, the one power, so much that he's willing to kill Perrin just to force Egwene to do it. Yeah. He's like, okay. Well, I know you can channel and tap into it. Right. If you're if you're not willing to do it, even to save your friend, I'll let you go because you can resist, right? You can right. resist the power. But if you do do it to save your friend, I, I can't trust you out there, right? And as I said earlier, that's where he made his mistake because he didn't think that Perrin could possibly have the power. And when it's revealed that Perrin, in fact, does have the ability to tap into the source... Child Valda is shook for the first time we've seen this incredibly powerful, incredibly ruthless character stand in horror 
He's in shock. He's almost seems like he's in awe as well. Yeah. He drops his knife. <laughs> Never a good move. That is so atypical for his character. He's always tries to be so tightly in control at all times. Well, and I mean, it makes sense. In this setting, men having magic is so unheard of. This would be the equivalent of any other literal human doing magic in front of you in the real world. And this is the response you would have. Right. If it was like actual undeniable magical powers. Now, I don't remember what the White Cloak's association with the dragon is. I kind of think they're looking for the dragon too. I think that as well. I think they want the dragon to probably be in charge. They do. They want the dragon to be working with them. And so when he sees Perrin channeling, I think his <laughs> shock and awe is like, maybe this is the dragon in front of He's me. He's probably also like, fuck, I probably shouldn't have diced this dude's back up like a side of ham. <laughs> it's true. And I think you're right. He was definitely in shock and awe. But we've not seen him really in front of anyone willing to hurt him. True. He might not fight his own fights. No, I don't. Well, yeah, he'll punch, you know, a Tuatha on woman on the road when she's saying, I'm not going to fight you. But yeah, somebody who's an equal or greater challenge, he's going to have a harder time possibly. And to your point, Jack, he seems to be cocky and in control when his opponents are tied up around him. Yeah. And he's definitely willing to do scary stuff. But yeah, when he sees a man channeling, maybe again, maybe it was just the shock of it. He drops his knife. He just says, like, light protect me, yeah. right? And maybe he just is not good at defending himself. <laughs> the light does not protect him. No. The light, well. I mean, they let him alive. live. Yeah, still yeah alive. that's true. He did get stabbed literally in the back, though. I'd also like to touch on... The light. Yeah. Right? Seems like we should. Can we establish what that is a bit more? Because I don't exactly remember. Do you remember? No. <laughs> oh, good. Well, because... it has been vaguely defined, but it is a spiritual or metaphysical embodiment of the concept of light, probably through the sun, right? And it is kind of a stand-in for God, it seems like. A powerful force in the universe that is in control or should be in control of people. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it definitely, it's what people use to channel, I remember. They draw on the light in order to use their spells. It seems to be the moral, like, the moral force in the universe, yes. where there's also the dark, which is what the Fade and the Dragon are supposedly a part of. Right. The cultural stories are that the light is broadly good and the dark is broadly bad that's right and we thought that was all there was in this setting however we get to see a bit more of the mythology in this setting when we see one of the warders whose name is steppen steppen smudging uh with like sage before a series of statues who are assumedly like archons or gods or demons yes in a ritual that's meant to keep them away. Right. It is a a warding ritual. Nice. And uh, He's a warder. It's what he does. That's right. And uh, our perspective warder, whose name is, of La course... Lan Mondragon. Lan is like, oh, 
who are you trying to keep away? And of course, Stepin is trying to keep away the father of lies. Ishmael, the father of lies, right? Oh, I hate lies. That's right. Was that the truth? (laughs) You'll never know. Huh? Yeah, you you guys are right. And then he says something really interesting about the last dragon. That's right. These, like, mythological figures were closed out of our reality. They were banished by the last dragon. Their connection was severed. Yeah, they say he sealed them away. And I was like, oh, that must have been like an aspect of what they call the breaking of the world. Yeah, but isn't that so interesting? They associate the dragon with the darkness. He was a man that could channel. Channeling pulls on the power of the light. So there's already something weird going on there. I know, wonky with the story. And how do you know that him sealing away the power of the gods from their world is a bad thing. It's true. It Done, like, done, done. The only god-like figure that we have knowledge of at this point is the father of lies. So presumably they're bad, right? <laughs> and so the dragon was probably doing the world a solid. Maybe. It's possible the last dragon was trying to seal away the dark one. That's true. We don't know. We only have the story as told by Ace Sedai. By, right. by the victors. Yeah. Because, you know, history, there's the whole thing about it. You know who writes it? The victors. Thank you, the victors. People named Victor write history. Right. I know a victor. Yeah. And is he a historian? Well, maybe on maybe by night. Oh, <laughs> uh, the night historian. Yes. The most dangerous kind of historian. Like a night librarian. The most dangerous kind of librarian. Because yeah. most libraries are closed at night. Oh, dude, we need to write a comic about a night librarian. I love it. You <laughs> see, during the day, we have the safe books. But at night, the forbidden in, section. by the light of the moon, the night section <laughs> reveals itself. <laughs> I love this. This is amazing. This yes. is so good. <laughs> so, the... Separation of the gods from a setting that uses light versus dark morality. Mm-hmm. I could see as a parallel of Christianity's relationship, which is negative, with paganism. Sure. Definitely. Good parallels here. If you look at things like the Book of Solomon, which I do not believe is canon to Judaism, but it came from Judaism... Uh, they have the demon sigils, which you might be aware of. Uh, Listeners may be familiar with these demons and their sigils. I think there are 49 demons. Is that right? It's I don't like that. know. That sounds right. But these demons... I can't were, keep track anymore. Right. These demons were inspired by the different mythologies and spiritualities that existed in the same region. One of my favorite parts of that is a lot of them are like... The demon of, like, social science and uh, <laughs> mathematics. It's like, uh, that's that demon sounds pretty rad. Right. You either made the other gods and goddesses into saints or demons. <laughs> Take your pick. <laughs> that's right. And so it was like, 
you can look at certain demons from like the Book of Solomon and then just tie it back to like, oh, if you look it up at all, it's like, oh, that's just Ishtar. And they yeah. were trying to slander the worship of it. Right. Right. And again, I don't know if this is a part of popular Judaism. I, I definitely don't think it is. But it's part of, like, certainly a mystic Judaism that exists. Do you guys mind if I wax philosophical on a tangent about the gods for a little bit? That was a very interesting sentence, so I'll allow it. <laughs> wax away. So, here we go. I'm thinking about the worship of gods and goddesses and how that's usually a practice by a group of people and it's a the group this group of people are channeling their thoughts and energies and prayers into this one idea sure that is personified and so this these gods and goddesses are personifications of ideas and morals and norms of the culture right yeah and uh from a spiritual standpoint that was kind of like an anthropological viewpoint from a spiritual standpoint, it's kind of like, you know, I'm pagan and, you know, this might be a bit blasphemous, but I think we should stop worship. We need to stop worshiping. It's not your deal. It's not your bag. And goddesses, because we all have creative force within us through our emotions and our drive to be creative. And so we shouldn't put other beings, whether they are real or an ideal on a pedestal above ourselves because then it is never attainable. And we just need to rethink all of that. <laughs> well, as regular listeners will know, my opinion is about class. Exactly. <laughs> Obviously, I'm for it. <laughs> you know, as someone who, who's been raised Christian, that it initially feels like a hot take, right? But upon further inspection, it's really conflicted whether that actually is a hot take. Right. right. You're supposed to have a relationship with God, right? How do you have a healthy relationship with somebody who you think is above you? Also, when you ask Christians like, oh, so is Jesus like God or right. like the son or like an avatar? The, the, the answer is really vague. You yeah. Can't... yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of those. Yeah, one of those. It seems like the popular answer is when you Jesus is as close as a person can be to God. So Jesus is analogous to God. Right. right. And so in a way, that's kind of like what you're saying. Right. If God is unattainable, if like being like a God is unattainable, then like that sucks. Right. Right. And that idea is kind of saying like, you can be like God. I think it's more hopeful. Yeah. I just want to share a little bit of not related to this story at all. Fun God stuff. And God. by God, I mean gods of like fantasy settings. Yes. In the Pathfinder setting, there's a God who ascended the Godhood on a drunken dare. Yes. <laughs> because uh, there's this God called Caden uh, Killeen in the Pathfinder setting who was just a dude who was drinking at a bar and there was like the trial of the world sound or whatever. It was like up on a mountain and people at the bar, he was drinking. They were like, ah, oh, I bet you can't do the trial of the world stone. He's like, betcha I can. And now he's a God. And that's, that's the type of God that I respect. There he you also, go. He also doesn't remember how he did it. He didn't remember doing it. Now that's good lore. Yeah. yeah. 
So seeing the gods as more the potential to be your equals, yeah, acknowledges your own autonomy and power and your own connection to some kind of divine or creative force. Because in a lot of traditions, humans are supposed to be connected to that creative force in some way and have it within them, right? Yeah. And so if we can rethink that, we can understand the impact we can really have on this world. And like hope is a very powerful force for that. I'm just imagining Cassidy in the attack and dethrone God meme. (laughs) Yes. It's also really relativistic, right? Because like I was saying, there's the perception that Jesus is as close as a person can be to a God and therefore is like God, right? In Greek mythology, they say that Odysseus is the closest a person can be to a God. Mm. And he's very different than Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> very. Went a lot more places. He, he helped siege Troy. <laughs> so godly. Yeah, so godly. Well, this is when we get into cultural ideals, right? Yeah, Odysseus was like this cultural hero of ancient Greece. Yeah. But they thought they both were sort of manifesting what they thought it meant to be divine, right? Yeah. Right. And this is what we were talking about with how the gods of a particular culture will be a personification of those ideals. That's right. In this show, when we were seeing him doing the like banishment or the warding of these mythological beings, yes, it was reminding me a lot of Gnosticism. Something I only just recently learned about. Interesting. But in Gnosticism, they believe in the creator god, which is virtuous, and the Sophia, which is virtuous. Right. Like a feminine deity sort of figure. And they believe in like 39 or 38 other archons, which are divine level beings that are all bad vibes. (laughs) And so that was reminding me very much of this. Oh, yeah. I would not be surprised... If in this setting, there were a divine masculine and feminine that were virtuous amongst a bunch of bad vibe sure. deities, that just does, like Gnosticism. Yeah, that does seem like it fits with the narrative we've gotten so far. That's right. Now, I will highlight something from this show that I found interesting because Stepan is warding against these gods, right? Or divine beings, whatever they are. They're, they're basically gods. But they have little votive figurines of them. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times in our world mythologies, Christianity, for example, Christians don't have little statues of Satan to ward against Satan. I thought it was interesting that he has these figurines of these entities that he's trying to, like, kind of push away rather than bring into his life. Right. Part of what I think that is, is these figurines are all really detailed. I think they were living people at one point. I think so. That the dragon banished away. Oh, so they've gone from real people into legend, into myth. I mean, they could also be like powerful spiritual entities in this setting if people can ascend to levels of godlikeness. Yeah. Godliness, we'll call it. Yeah. Well, it just seems like, well, you know, what to picture when you picture the devil, right? In Christianity? There's no one clear idea. If there was one clear idea, it's probably modeled after a person, right? I think it's modeled after Pan, but... That's one idea of what the devil could look like. 
But in this, they definitely have their own statues. Yeah, but it does seem likely that these statues were probably from thousands of years ago, right? I mean, the White Tower is filled with... They say that, like, the statues of the old warders are almost as old as the concept in the tower itself. Right. Yeah. Like, this is a place with a tremendous amount of history, and this is a setting where everybody believes in the cyclical nature. I mean, in this episode, Egwene threatens child valda by saying if you kill me i will come back and murder your next incarnation yeah and everybody in the setting seems so far to believe in this concept of reincarnation to the point where it seems like they have actual proof of it well i mean they seem to with the dragon being reborn as that episode was called yeah well we did get the implication we touched on last time there might have been more than one dragon. Yes. Reincarnation in the cycle. But it seems like even before the last dragon was chaotic, the concept of the dragon as a person could have existed. Like they were just a powerful figure that kept reincarnating, which is why these gods, the dragon may have banished. He could count himself among them is one theor- one hypothesis I have is that these were like, other divine figures like the dragon that he just said, I'm going to stick around, but I'm kicking you guys out. Right. Yeah. I'm in charge now. Yeah. It's an idea. Well, before we move on, let's talk a little bit about some character development we're having with some of our characters. Specifically, I'm thinking of Moraine and this journey that we've been on with her and how yes. now that she's back in Tar Valon, we're getting a different side of her. We're learning a little bit about her backstory, Not a whole lot, but we're touching on this idea that she is very different from the other Aes Sedai. She's a bit of a wanderer. Yeah. And she's not really comfortable being back here in Torvalon. She has a very sparse room. And her compatriot, Alana, wants her to kind of challenge the power of their current leadership. And Moraine's like, you know that I'm not interested in this. You know that I'm, I'm like doing my own thing right now and you want me to like take over authority but that's not my bag she's kind of like gandalf a bit (laughs) yes yeah we've really seen her become more and more humanized in the last few episodes and that's partly through her relationship with lan yes we get to see lan brings out the best in everybody how tight their bond is and how much they've been through together and how much they trust each other and it goes a long way to humanizing both of them and we get a lot this episode about the bonds between warders with each other and with their ace to die they protect definitely i mean it is so extreme that they can feel each other's emotions they can feel each other's pain and losing and a Aesodai losing their warder or vice versa is so devastating that it can lead you to tremendous self-harm. Yeah. The incredible loss and grief that they feel and also kind of survivor's guilt. Yeah. It seems that Stefan, Stefan is feeling. He talks about the pain and that's all that's left. And that happens when you lose a loved one that you're really close to. And it's like... You're feeling that intense pain because you still love them. And that's what remains. And 
a lot of people don't really think about that or understand that. And uh, it hurts to still love someone who's gone. Maybe they're not really gone. I mean, they're they're just sitting on the wheel waiting for the next rotation, right? <laughs> they're riding the Ferris wheel of time. <laughs> oh, that sounds like fun, actually. That's a lot more fun. The way Jamie described it made me think of like being on a crowded escalator just for like a thousand years. Oh, God. <laughs> That's like the Ferris wheel is a lot more fun, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I want like a roller coaster of time. Oh my gosh. Being on a roller coaster for a thousand years? I'm here for it. I'm kind of here for it, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. They These complicated feelings about love are expressed through the characters in this episode, especially Lan and Stepan as they're talking to each other. And they talk about the concept that love is a bad idea. But you do it anyways. Yeah. It seems like a lot of media these days tries to give us that perception. And uh, I might say there's just as much that argues the opposite. However, for the things that do argue that loving is a bad idea or something that's foolish, I think the actual foolish part is that we have such an ignorant relationship with how love works. Yeah. Right? yeah. As a Western society, we certainly have a traditional idea on what love should look like. It's often confused with passion. That's right. And it's very heteronormative. Yes. It's very monogamous. At least this show is doing a little bit to combat that. It's true. Yeah, it's true. The show is very good about sexuality because in this episode our two prospective warders whose names are lan and steppen are talking about how steppen is possibly going to try bonding with another acidai alana alana who has two that's not nearly a fantasy enough name oh avon thank goodness no alana is the acidai right her two warders are maxim and yvonne yvonne okay perfect Well, he's going to be part of her warder group. He's like, oh, uh, well, you know, we warders have sex with our co-workers, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. just what we do here. Yeah. But I've never been with a guy. And Lon is like, you mean two guys? And Stepan is like, oh, yeah, you're right. And he's like, I'm not, not willing. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah, he's just like, I've just not experienced with yeah. it. Yeah. He said, I guess there's a first time for everything. Yeah, Yeah, very normalized. Yeah. Even if it's not his preference, he's still down, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, just because you like chocolate cake doesn't mean vanilla cake isn't isn't just fine. (laughs) Perfect analogy. (laughs) That's right. And uh, the perception is also that, like, doing something nice because it's going to end makes it silly. Like, the ephemeral nature of stuff is a very, like, oh, you know, it's not worth it. But isn't that kind of a super doomer attitude? Right. It's like the idea that a failed marriage is one that ends in divorce. Like, I mean, people change. A failed marriage is one where they were never happy. Yeah, it's true. If it's a, a marriage where two people were happy and then became unhappy over time, could have been a success for a long time. You can't judge everything by the way it ended. And they successfully divorced each other after the Hopefully. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Unlike my grandparents. Oh, yeah. God. Who just hated each other. That's the thing, though. Like, for me, I like monogamous relationships. Sure. But for a lot of people, 
that just doesn't work for them. But they are fitting into what has always been displayed, right? In our culture, monogamy is expected. Yeah, yes. I was going to say it's the expected norm. Yeah. And if you're not really exposed to a normalized alternative, you're going to have to figure out how to deal with it through trial and error. Yeah. Which we're also not good at making mistakes in our society. So We're great at making them. We're bad at admitting from them and learning from them. That's right. And so we make mistakes all the fucking time. Part of the learning process for how to love is trial and error. And we are doing it in a way that leaves a lot of hurt feelings that are unresolved. And a lot of people who are scared to keep trying. Yeah. And just like unable to really address their feelings and move past when things haven't worked out. Like it like step in in this uh in this episode yeah there are also so many different types of love it's true and that is largely unexamined in our culture as well it's true yeah it's a hard catch-all term to use when it can be applied to so many things because you know i love cassidy i love my parents i love our cats and i love hamburgers but these are all very different types of love. Yes. <laughs> I don't have sex with my hamburgers. But oh, maybe. That's a controversial thing. <laughs> yeah. You mean sex with two hamburgers. <laughs> oh, that's even better. Yeah. Four buns? Wow. Is it two buns or is it four buns? That's a Huh. <laughs> I thought it was interesting you said hamburgers and not hot dogs. That makes sense, you know? Well, maybe I, I have had sex with me. hot dogs. True. <laughs> but not with hamburgers. That's Not fair. yet. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, my whole point is, of course, that it is a term that we use in English that probably doesn't cover a complex enough range for how we mean it when we say it. It's true. You can put modifiers on it, like romantic love or platonic love, familial, you know? Sure. Meanwhile, German probably has some fun conjoined words to describe all of these things and more. German emotions are so much more complex. <laughs> we need to develop a good language around our emotions because it will help us understand them better. Are you feeling schadenfreude? Are Germans considered emotionally complex? Their languages. Really? Is that true? I yes. feel like I've heard a lot to the contrary. <laughs> well, I've heard a lot of jokes to the contrary. May you know, that's yeah. the exposure I think I'm used to. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure Germans feel all the same emotions as everybody else. Well, of course. <laughs> but their language includes so many complex concepts that merge multiple feelings together. Okay, that that's good. really can express more of the full range of human emotions and how complex they are yeah and i i would love to explore that more in the main language we have in our culture which is english now all this being said i think a few weeks ago i did talk about the norwegian man who loved his wife so much that he almost told her i think about that very often <laughs> <laughs> but that's probably enough of our delve here why don't we head into final thoughts for the episode
All right, guys, so we're more than halfway through the Wheel of Time Season 1 now. What are our thoughts as we're coming out of Episode 5? My thoughts coming out of Episode 5 are, wow, the show's getting real good. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, the first few episodes were rocky for me. They were really kind of unimpressive and frustrating. Yes. But as they are, like Cass said, deviating from the books, which you might want to mention. Yeah, uh, in the last episode in this one, they are getting farther and farther away from being completely faithful to the narrative of the book, the first book. And they're exploring the story on their own terms, the creative of, creators of the show were. And it really shows the story is so much more complex and rich and the characters are so much more compelling as a result. Yes. And the world feels very rich. Definitely. And it has more verisimilitude to it, especially the cultures and their traditions. Whoever took charge of this episode likes ritual a lot. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, and I feel like a lot of the episodes have had some interesting world building through ritual and practices. We just got a lot of funerary rituals in particular in this episode. That's right. And then some of the like warding by warders. Rituals and ceremonies are an important part of our cultures and our everyday lives. They can help us mark the passage of time and find meaning through that and through other important events that happen like a birth, a marriage, or a death. And so seeing that portrayed in our media helps us feel the weight of that. It gives you that emotional depth to the story. That's right. And uh, we got to see that they associate the color white with funerals. Yes. And the white cloaks wear all white. That's right. And uh, that's interesting. That's like in India, they wear all white during funerals. And uh, we see they bury people in the fields with a white cloth over them and a candle burning. Mm -hmm. And when we see the warder's death, there's no candle, but they're still white everywhere. Everyone is wearing it. And they're doing a chest pounding ritual. It's almost like a group heartbeat. That's right. They have the communal griever. Mm -hmm. Right. They have one person who is feeling the grief for everybody, expressing the grief for everybody. It's kind of the opposite of Midsommar, right? Like that scene where all the women are wailing with Florence Pugh's character. This is Lan wailing alone in the room for everyone to feel. Yes. And so that was just super interesting. Before he does that, he looks directly in Maureen's eyes and they you can tell they feel the intense grief together in that moment because they both start to... Weep. Weep uncontrollably. Yes. Their faces just start leaking. Yeah. That's right. And uh, Nynaeve notices this, and I think she's sort of moved, and her perception is changing a little bit about this. I think so. This is a very touching moment. Uh, It was moving how heavy it was, and it was heavy how moving it was. It's true. And and, uh, also the Ogre. Is that what it's called? That's right. Ogre. We see a non-human sentient species, which I don't know if you consider the Trollocs that. I think they're sentient. They're just brutal. I don't know. We haven't seen one of them speak yet, I don't think. It's true. The Ogre is 
for all intents and purposes, civilized, except I don't know if he knows Bushido. Uh, <laughs> but He's a librarian. Of course he knows Bushido. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> they, in only like a couple of scenes, they completely establish a cultural difference between the Ogre and the humans. They're less impulsive. They don't seem to have as many flyaway thoughts. No, they take a long view on life. That's true. They seem long-lived. They say like, oh, humans, their minds are always flying all over the place also. Like, they have a very steady line of thinking. They don't rush into things. He moves at a steady right. pace. I like that about him, too. Mm-hmm. He immediately assumes that he and Ran are going to see this public showing together, though they just met. He's yeah. like, oh, I'm going with you. Wait a minute for me to get ready. Yeah. <laughs> and Rand is like out the door. And then Loyal is just like, oh, humans, so rash and impulsive. Just sorting through his paperwork, not hurrying. I love it. And he goes and finds Nynaeve later in the White Tower because Rand mentioned he was looking for her and he knew he felt like he knew where to find her. Yeah. And he just gets shit done. Slow but steady wins the race. And I know, yeah, true. And I know we mentioned it because the hare is rushing and impulsive, but the turtle is steady and, and therefore it wins. That's right. And, uh, but Loyal mentions he has access to the White Tower, not because he's a librarian, just because he's an Ogre. And he says Ogres have access to it. Yeah. For I, no obvious reason. <laughs> I thought that was really fascinating. I can't wait to find out more about the Ogiers. Me neither. They yeah. s- the implication seems to be that they are monstrous. However, we've only seen a contrary individual to that concept and that the Aes Sedai trust them enough to let them in the tower. Rand is the only person who seems put off by Loyal's presence at first. Everyone yeah. else is just like, yeah, whatever. Even Nenev doesn't seem like she was freaked out. Well, Loyal says there was an angry mob trying to chase him across the entire city when he first showed up. That's fair. So, so he is in, uh, he is enculturated to Torvalon. That's right. I think it says something like you were mentioning, Jack, that they're allowed into the White Tower with no questions asked. Yeah. They must have a connection to the source somehow. Yeah. Who Maybe. Can- we're gonna find out. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to see what's next because, like Jack said, business is picking up. The episodes are getting real interesting. I still think that it suffers from the problem of trying to tell three different stories at once. Right. This is a complaint we had in The Witcher Season 2 where some of the episodes were just jumping so much between characters. My notebook for this episode, it's so hard. I need, like, a three page spread just to cover everything that's happening because each group of characters is kind of like cut and interspersed i think i would have rather had episodes that were like rand and matt's journey perrin and Egwene's journey nenev and moraine's journey and then maybe they'd all come together in an episode like this because it's just pulling on too many threads at once for my taste i get that what they should do in The Witcher is, uh, since they've been having Geralt in the show less and less and less, just slowly have him be in this show more and more <laughs> and more until he's completely out of The Witcher and just in Wheel of Time. Oh my god, the fanfic is going to be going wild after you just manifested that into the world. Yes, because as we know, Geralt, 
doesn't inherently hate dragons. True. That's right. He might be the perfect type of person to help sort out this whole thing. But he'll hate doing it. A bigot Geralt is not. True. That's why we stand Geralt. That's true. He's a big un. (laughs) Oh, yeah. he's so buff. Yeah. Not a big it. Yeah. Yeah. He's the good type. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, (laughs) yes. We'd like to thank you all for joining us on another episode. If you enjoyed listening to us, maybe consider following us on social media at Swords and Satire on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter so you can keep up with the show, get in touch with us, let us know what you think about the episodes, and check out our memes. Yeah, and if you want to support the show even more, you can head over to patreon.com slash swordsandsatire and join our patron community. Support the show with your money. That's right. (laughs) We'd appreciate it. Yes. That's right. And you could do that for as little as $2 a month or more. That's right. Thank you, patrons. And with that, let's jump into the summary. (laughs) All right. Well, until next time, Hail Crom! Crom!